Welcome into another episode of the MLS Bench Podcast, and today I have an extremely exciting episode upcoming for all of you. I have Matt and Andres with me to break down uh, what was another ridiculous week in uh, MLS. We'll touch on the weekend games, a few of the midweek games as well, and we have probably the biggest interview that we might ever do on this podcast, Matt Doyle. We were able to sit down with him for a couple minutes uh, earlier in the week. And we'll have that coming up at the end of the pod. And I'll throw a timestamp in that uh, in the description so you guys can jump right to that if you want. Uh, but first, we're going to hit, as we normally do, uh, what was uh, this last week of MLS action. And I think there's no better place to start than NYCFC and really the downfall of NYCFC within the last couple weeks. They haven't won in the last four matches, a draw and three straight losses to open up the month of August. Uh, In in particular, uh, yesterday's loss, we're recording this Thursday, yesterday's loss versus Charlotte FC, a 3-1 defeat at home, was not a uh, a good game for them at all. They also lost to Inter-Miami 3-2 on the weekend down in Miami. So Matt, I'll throw it to you first. How's it going? And boy, NYCFC have uh, not not shown themselves in glory in the last uh, few weeks, have they? Absolutely. And uh, yeah, good to see you, Joey, and uh, really good to be back with y'all. but New York City, it is not good times right now. Uh, they not just the two matches that they've uh, or the two last matches that they give they've given up three goals. This is three games on the trot. They've given up three goals to or to uh, Columbus rather, who understandable. Columbus has some great attackers, but Charlotte and Inter Miami are not teams that you can get beat by if you're going to be considered. It, anything going into the playoffs the the only real positive that new york city has at the moment is that they were so good early in the season that they've given themselves enough runway to be as bad as they've been uh, the the real difficult thing that they've come across is that they are giving up acres and acres and acres of space they are refusing to actually step out to get to the ball and in this, like, you just can't do that. Uh, this is a, uh, I'm looking at the Charlotte game at the moment. This is a game where you have a DP striker in Carol Swiderski who has scored, what, five goals maybe in the league as a DP? And he's walking through that back line. There is, it's just not good enough for New York City. Not good enough at all. I mean, when you consider... The, the talent that this team still has, um, I think it was Doyle or I forget who else. I don't think it was Doyle. It was, it was um, another good MLS account that put up a good uh, comp. Uh, I think it was last night of just their passing to the left side from that left center back position that's usually uh, inhabited by Alexander Kyans, who's out now. And that seems like there's a void there, too. But when you just look at the attacking pieces and the pieces throughout the entire lineup, like... It's a team that should still, you know, win one and four against teams that are fighting and or, you know, significantly outside uh, of the playoff line. You know, we're talking about a team here that only lost really one player and or now two, I guess, with cons uh, for injury and their head coach. Big losses, don't get me wrong, but in the grand scheme of things, not losses that should see you, you know, g- giving come from behind wins to enter Miami. You know what I mean? Andres, um, how's it going? Uh what more do you have to add on NYCFC and the problems that they are having at the moment? 
Yeah, so NYC, I think we can now pretty definitively say that they are significantly worse um, in pretty much all aspects of the game. That's, you know, defending in their own half, putting pressure on the opposition in their, in, in their own third, um, and, and then also in, in attacking and creating chances. Um, and, you know, we're now, what, 15 games almost into this new area with, with Nick Cushing and you could say the loss of Tati obviously hurts and they've had a couple injuries now uh, but this is a team that was absolutely flying and should have enough talent to, to stay above uh, above board and if if they were slightly worse off in in the first couple months of the season you'd really wonder about them making the playoffs they're they're very clearly not the team that, that we saw them in May and in June. Hey. A couple of things that I, I just have questions on with how this this roster is being addressed, because you're right, we, we do have uh, no Keaton Parks in this roster currently. We have no um, James Sands, obviously, but I don't really love the idea of dropping Maxi back deeper because he does not really have the ability to cover that much space. It's... You have players like Gideon Zalalem. You have players like Chris Gloucester who can play a little bit further back. Justin Hawk. I, I question whether some of those options are just making their midfield so much easier to play through. And then, like Andres is saying, giving up that space just makes it really, really easy to play against you. And you're getting scored on when you have one of the best goalkeepers in the league in net, too. We're talking a guy who is leading for uh, clean sheets but is also given up almost 1.2 goals per game. Uh, it's, it's just not good enough. It's not good enough. And uh, good point on Keaton Parks, and that's uh, something that Doyle uh, brings up. Uh, we're going to have that later in the pod, as I said. Um, Keaton Parks being out is obviously a massive loss and a guy that uh, you know, he was on the fringes of what we would consider like the MLS-based USMNT you know, roster guys, some of those uh, you know, Christmas camps and stuff. He's been in those camps or been on the outside of those camps. So we're talking about a player that has a ton of quality. Uh, I didn't bring up James Sands because he was gone uh, before the season started. And even if we just look in the first couple months of the season, really, um, in between that period that they were out of CCL and the June international window, I'm not sure they lost a game. Um, and that just drop off to where they are now is massive. And like we said, a few injuries, uh, losing Tati, but at the end of the day, um, they, they still have Tyus Magno who broke out in the first uh, portion of the season, uh, Santi Rodriguez, who we know is great, Tiago Andrade. So they have players still and pieces to build around. Um, and I, you bring up an interesting point about Maxi, like, Maxi's the kind of guy where he is, in the truest sense of the word, an attacking midfielder or a playmaker. He is not going to drop deep and, you know, he's not going to do a Leon Flock run seven miles every game. He's going he's gonna to find his spots and pick the passes. So good point, Matt. Um, I guess, Andres, before we move on from this discussion, is there anything that you see, like, particularly in, like, the style of play? I know Doyle um, was putting stuff out about pressure and stuff. Do you see anything specifically there in how they're playing? Or do you think, or as I kind of seen as well, they just have lost that killer instinct in and around the box? Because they were still getting good uh, positions versus Inter-Miami in particular on the weekend. But they weren't just finishing goals. Uh, yeah, so, so some of that is definitely down to 
to losing Tati and how much pressure Tati could put on the back line of teams, uh, just making runs, um, finding the ball, attacking balls. That That's some of it. But also, so many of the goals in this league, and, and in, in world soccer, but, but I think even higher in the percentage in this league is coming from teams uh, losing the ball in their own half um, and the team that turns them over having two, three passes right into the zone 14 um, and, and getting transition goals. And they're just doing so much less of that uh, the last two months than they were previously. If you look back on the Real Salt Lake highlights when they put up six, pretty much every goal was that way. The you know Salt Lake would lose the ball 30, 40 yards out from their own goal um, and New York would be right down their throat not even three seconds later. And that's just not happening anymore. So it's a combination of things. Uh, personnel is also uh, a part of it. Uh, so I think it's it's more than just one thing. Uh, but there's tweaks that they can make to go back into a more pressure-type system, which I think would help. Yeah, and like, like you said, um, quickly I'll throw it to you, Matt, and then we can move on from this discussion. Uh, as I was mentioning, that kind of that um, April, May to you know June uh, stretch after they lost in CCL to Sounders, um, they won three straight, drew uh, one in the Open Cup, won three straight in the league, one in the Open Cup, and then one versus Minnesota, and then that was the end of May in the international window. Like they didn't lose for what, like almost two straight months. That's insane. And now to uh, kind of compound that into what they are now, they don't look like a team that's has a chance of going anywhere in the playoffs. Matt, you have the final word on this one before we move on. I, I do just want to go ahead. You're absolutely right. Like we are, it just seems like it's an entirely different team from, from that like late spring uh, NYC. Um, I do want to take a quick moment to absolutely praise uh, Charlotte and Inter Miami who went out there and got these points. These are two teams that, I don't think anybody really thought would be quite to this level. Um, I know Charlotte, you know, there was the, the expectations from their coaching at very least were pretty low at the beginning of the season, but uh, you know, they're, they're fighting for potentially a playoff spot. So picking up these points in New York are, is massive for them. Inter Miami picking up those points and getting some really, really good play from their big attackers, especially Pozuelo, such a good signing for them. They're they're doing the right things, or they've done the right thing this last weekend in at the midweek. So good job to both those teams. Yeah, great job to both those teams. And just to update uh, listeners in the standings, if you guys don't know, Inter Miami uh, on the same or their eighth, uh, Orlando was seventh, tied on games played, tied on points. Orlando with a negative eight goal differential, Inter Miami with a negative nine goal differential. So just within that, um, you know, we're talking about Inter Miami, like a goal or so outside of the playoffs. Um, and then Charlotte, uh, 32 points, one more game play than all those teams ahead of them. But, you know, they're still very much in the playoff race at the 10th spot as well. And NYCFC has uh, since dropped back 25 games play on 42 points. Uh, well out of reach of Philly at the top of the East. So, uh, you know, good wins, certainly playoff aspiration-saving wins for uh, Miami and Charlotte and for NYCFC. Uh, they seem to be slipping at the moment. 
we're going to go ahead and transition uh, to, Matt, your team, SKC, going down to Austin. Uh, it looked really good for about 60 minutes. They took a 3-1 lead. Uh, they seemed to be playing maybe one of their best games of the season, and then Austin came trundling back, all finished off by Sebastian Driussi, extra time, uh, or stoppage time winner, uh, to see Austin win it 4-3. to three. And boy, I... I, I'm hesitant to say that this was the best performance of SKC's season because they didn't win, but they looked really good for the first 45, 60 minutes, and then stuff started going downhill, Matt. Uh, sorry about your team. Yeah, it's, it is what it is. Uh, you know, if, if soccer was played for 60 minutes, this would have been really, really fun. Um, yeah, I, I think that you're right to say, though, this was the best performance of, of sporting season. To go into an environment like Q2... Uh, and put three or three past, you know, I think is, is fair to say the, the only team that kind of gets close to what LAFC is doing in the West. Uh, Austin is not to that degree because obviously they had three goals scored on them by sporting Kansas city this season. Um, but they're a good team and they found the opportunities to go ahead and fight back into this match. Uh, Sporting was miserable off of set pieces in this match. I think at l- I believe it was three of the four goals were immediately following a corner, immediately following a dead ball. Uh, those restart moments are just really, really pathetic from Sporting. Um, and it, there's not much excuse that these players have. Uh, to get in, into this game, uh, you do get some really, really good play, uh, specifically from those uh, summer signings for sporting in uh, Eric Tommy and Willie Agata, um, who have been the bright spot, which is, again, sad to say because they've been around for two weeks. Um, but then the back line becomes paper and they can just be cut through with absolute ease. Yeah. Uh, and that's going to be the problem. I, you made a good point about the set pieces, something that you know made me realize like it wasn't necessarily that initial ball in, but the recycled balls, balls dropping down that weren't properly cleared, uh, you know, midfielders not tracking their runners. That's how Drewsy got the winner too. Or I forget if it was a corner or if it was off a cross, just like a normal cross. But you know, he was wide open, like from 12 yards out, he's going to score that every time. Um, Cascante getting a goal as well. That was off a set piece. Um, you know, those are easily, you know, there is there situations that can easily be prevented if they just, I don't know, worked on the film. Like I just did the basic things. Um, I, I do want to, uh, before we move on to Austin and kind of how they're looking to just, I guess, stabilize themselves at that's kind of second place in the West. You were mentioning in our Discord, the MLS Bench Discord, um, a few weeks ago about William Magada and how uh, he's looking and, you know, maybe the upgrade that he is over whatever other option you would have in lieu of uh, Alan Polito being out. You know, wh- what are you seeing in Agata that, you know, makes you excited for, I guess, the next couple months and then into the future? It's really nice to have a striker who's actually goal dangerous. Um, I believe Agata currently has two goals on the season. He's already halfway to Kyrie Shelton in maybe an eighth of the minutes. Uh, His pressure pushing back, you do get a lot of that from Kyrie, but not, uh, or you don't get the the goal scoring added on. 
um, a, a threat in behind because that's not necessarily what sporting tends to try to do. They found him as an outlet and generally he's very, very uh, North South runner. He will get downhill and he will try to, you know, put it behind you. That's not necessarily what sporting has done. Most of this season, generally Kyrie has been making runs into the channel to try and pick up the ball, give the uh, wingers a way to go ahead and cut in. Now we have another threat, and that's what I think Agata is really starting to bring. Yeah, I, I, he looks good. And by the way, Tommy, for me, it looks like an absolute standout. He's just a bright spot all over the pitch. If you know we were able to have him and then uh, Gotti Kinda coming back and Polito hopefully next season, I think you have something there then. Uh, he looks really, really good coming in from the Bundesliga. Um, Andres, I guess we can uh, transition on to Austin, a team that we had a little debate over uh, earlier in the season, haven't touched up on them besides just the fact of, you know, commending Driussi uh, for his unbelievable output uh, thus far. They are sitting uh, second in the league as a whole, second in the West on 48 points through 25 games. Looking pretty good right now in terms of their position in the West. Uh, LAFC basically uncatchable at this point, but Austin is in prime position to hold that second spot and play the seventh seed team to open up the playoffs at home in Q2. How have you seen them since we last really went deep on them? And, you know, what what do you think they can do um, that, that could maybe even make them a better team than they are right now? Because at the same time, they aren't the best team in the league. So, you know, how do you kind of see Austin? So I think it was either last week or or the week before that I basically held up my hand and said, okay, uh, definitely they're going to make the playoffs, right? That's that's clear. And it looks like they're definitely going to have a home game. So that prediction of mine or that that uh, thought process that I had maybe two months, three months ago where I thought they were going to fall fall off or be scrapping for a playoff spot seems to not be the case, um, which good on them. That said... Um, there was a there was a tweet and I'm struggling to find it now, um, showing basically what what amounts to expected goals and the difference of points gathered minus what your expected goals say you should you should gather, um, which essentially shows that Austin is the luckiest team in the history of Major League Soccer, um, which. To a certain extent, I think you make your own luck and credit to them at this point with this sample size. You have to say some of that comes down to fighting all the way through games and taking points um, late at times when maybe they weren't super deserved um, to get that late draw or that or that late winner. Um, but that's just maybe a moment of pause if you think that Stuver's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, what happens if he regresses a little back back to the mean? Um, the defense has been okay, but has been starting to show cracks here lately. So I have a little bit of pause still. Uh, I take back the not making the playoffs, uh, but I'm not sold on the making a deep playoff run. How's that? Um, for, for That's an, fine. For an opinion. Uh, I I like that you, you bring up the expected goals, the expected points measures. I just looked up Driussi's uh, G minus XG because uh, not to get too in the weeds on XG, uh, as, as any good analyst uh, will say, you know, XG will generally regress back to the mean. If you have a player that's going crazy, it'll come back at some point. And 
it's still a pretty small sample size. But Driussi's scored 17. His expected goals are 9.74. His G minus XG is 7.26. So by far the highest in the league. And you've seen it. He's scored some absolutely absurd goals. But that's kind of how that happens then. And Elliot McKinley is always great on the um, X points versus points minus expected points. Uh, Austin... Like you said, the, maybe the luckiest team, luckiest team in the history of you know keeping these stats. So it is insane uh, what they're doing up to this point, and yet a lot of that is luck. We'll see how that you know manifests itself as the season continues. But when you have a player performing at the level of Driussi, when you have players performing at the level of an Alex Ring, Brad Stuver, obviously one of the best keepers in the league, you're going to continue to win games. Matt, what do you see on Austin? Um, it absolute stars you know putting games away and if they can get even better play from their wing uh it's scary um i do want to just kind of point out a couple of players who have been a little bit you know under the radar but have been really really good in diego fagundes and for me john gallagher has been a revelation truly this is the left back um he has been up and down that left-hand side, give so much cover for uh, Fagundes, and can start to join the attack really, really well. Uh, I'm trying to find the stat. I believe he's on uh, one goal, four assists for the season, but it his involvement is so far beyond that. Putting in a couple of man-of-the-match performances based on FOTMOB's uh, statistics, he's been a real bright spot. Um, and then obviously just so 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 much star power uh and then if they can if if aruti can either you know kind of step back up on his goal production or if they can find some other way to keep on putting the ball in the back of the net beyond driussi this is a team that could break into that lafc philadelphia tier yeah, and let's not forget that Emiliano Rigoni from Sao Paulo down in uh, Brazil is coming in. Uh, they signed him at the end of the transfer window in the summer. And so if he's able to come in and continue to bolster that attack, if that means, you know, changing up the formation, if that means having to drop someone like Ethan Finley, who has, you know, still been good, um, or Diego Fagundes potentially even. That's a good problem to have still. Bring those, you know, really good attackers off the bench. And Rigoni should be a great piece. We mentioned um, uh, him in the Chris Bills interview that we did back in our transfer special, but he's, he seems to be pretty special too coming in. I guess lastly, before we move on from Austin, where do we see them in the, I guess, the grand scheme of likelihood, right? Because we we're saying they could be in the Philly, uh, Philly LFC tier. They could maybe regress back, like you said, um, Andres, into that kind of luck tier, and that luck might not persist into the playoffs. What's a realistic expectation for this team, besides just sitting second in the West? Where do we see them going in the playoffs? I think any team that scores goals consistently and then has an insanely good goalkeeper which is what Brad Stuver has been for the vast majority of this season, um, has a chance. I am, they are not favorites. I don't think that they're probably, you know, favorites. All right. I don't think they're second favorites to get out of the West. I still give it a little bit towards the experience of uh, a couple other teams 
in the West, uh, especially if somebody like Seattle can sneak in. Um, which seems unfair, actually, now that I really think about that. This is a team that absolutely can beat anybody on a, any given day. But there's so much variance in that because of the fact that, again, we're talking about a team that gave up three goals to Sporting Kansas City. Fair enough. Andres, um, where do you see this team? I, you said you know, maybe not uh, progressing far in the playoffs. Do you see them getting out of the first round at the very least? I mean, they'll have a they'll have a home game probably. Um, so I think handicapping MLS playoffs tends to be a a fool a fool's errand because one game one off games uh, high stakes can be difficult to to really prognosticate. Um, I think the defensive issues make it difficult for them to put together what four straight to to go to MLS Cup, especially good against good teams. Um, so I think first round at home probably is okay for them. I, I would say maybe a second round exit again. I think it's difficult to say, uh, but if you're going to tell me most likely or most probable, I probably don't have them in the first two or three teams. Kind of like Matt as most likely. Okay. That's solid. I've always kind of thought of Austin as a little better than both of you, but I, I can kind of see where you guys are coming from. I think that they have the potential to go to the conference final because they realistically will have two home games uh, through the first two rounds, and we know that that home-away difference matters so much when it comes to the playoffs um, and just the league in general. So I could see them making it to the conference finals, especially because when you throw in you know Brad Stuver and his production is you know definitely a top-three keeper in the league at, at least. Um, and Drew Ucci being the MVP up to this point. But yeah, I also am a believer in those expected stats and the expected points, uh, and then the points minus expected points does show them as an extremely lucky team. Um, a team we know when you throw in those stats are vulnerable when it comes to, you know, one game situations. So we will see. We shall see. Um, and basically all we got on that game we'll see what austin's able to do sitting second in the west unfortunately for skc you can play a great game and yet they are still uh last in the west and second to last in the league as a whole so see what happens there moving forward and we will move on to a team on the opposite end of the skc spectrum in uh cf montreal uh, they won down in Houston uh, on the weekend. 3-2 was the result there. This is a team that is, because of NYCFC's slide, is now sitting second in the East. So, what do we make of this team? Yeah, I don't know exactly what their fortunes are going to be because they've, they haven't been playing ridiculously well. They've just kind of stumbled into the top two of the East. However, you can stumble into the top two. Uh, so, Andres, how do you see this team moving forward? And I guess, do they have a shot? So, I'd like to take this Montreal question and expand it a little bit about who do we think or, or who do we see as the second best team in the East? Because that's that's where they are right now, right? As you mentioned, they've they haven't been playing particularly well, uh, but I think Wilfred Nancy's done an absolutely incredible job they're a very solid uh team in terms of they don't give up 
easy goals. They're pretty difficult to play uh, through. They don't create the most chances in the world, but they're not completely inept on the offensive end. So they're pretty solid front to back. That said, uh, you know, I think we all kind of think that they may lack maybe the high-end attacking talent that some of the other teams may have. NYCFC would have been the default answer a couple of weeks ago. I think, as we've mentioned, that they've fallen, they've fallen off. So it's difficult to say, is a team that Mon- like Montreal, uh, which is maybe a light Philly in terms of just solid all the way through without maybe the, the absolute stars outside of Georgie, is that who, who you would have as your second best team? Uh, I've got somebody in mind, but I'm curious to hear your, your thoughts. Or team in mind, I should say. I, I, I think that I'm a little bit higher on Montreal than you might be then. I, I actually think putting them at second best in the East makes a lot of sense to me, actually. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the real reason being is that they have a pretty high floor. Um Looking at this team top to bottom, they have a ton of experience. Uh, and I think about soccer is a weakest link game. So where is their their biggest issue? For me, it's probably one of their center backs. I'm, I don't have a ton of trust in Rudy Camacho, but I understand that there's a, a, a big fan support for him as a player. And he's been there doing it for a long time. Uh, but I think that he is prone to some pretty bad lapses. You put him in with two other center backs, especially one who's playing as well as Kamal Miller is of recently. Um, that brings that level up. You have a lot more flexibility through the midfield. You could go a little bit more defensively with Piet and Wanyama. You could go a little bit more um, offensive with putting in Kone. Uh, you could... You know, there's there's just a lot more tools that this team has than I think most teams in the East. And then if Mihailovic gets back to anything close to what he was before injury, they're really, really good. Kyoto's been pretty consistent. Uh, I, I, I like this team. I think that's fair to say. Uh, I, I think all those are good points. I can see them just because, like, they don't pop off the page, and they haven't all season, and that's why when you you know flip it, flip over to the standings, and you you know see them second place, especially when you know juxtaposed with kind of the firepower of NYCFC that they still have, even you know without Tati, you can kind of be like, oh dang, how did that happen? But when you have a international quality striker in Romel Kyoto who can continue to put in goals, he got injured. Um, Versus Houston, but that was after uh, putting in a a penalty in the fifteenth minute. He then missed the penalty uh, later in the game. You know, Kone, who looks bright, youngster who could definitely become something in the few, next few years. Only twenty years old. Uh, you know, Alistair Johnson and Lap- Lassie Lapalainen getting goals from the wingback positions. Um, you know, those are two goals that put them over the edge versus Houston. Those are contributions coming from all over. And obviously, when you throw in, you know, Georgie, we're talking about a guy who has been in the MVP discussions in the past. This is a team that's built front through back to be a very good team. Um, and they're going to be a tough out in the playoffs for sure. I think it's just hard for me to see them as the second best team because, like you said, for so long, Philly, NYCFC, those two, or even the Red Bulls you could throw in there as well. You know, those just seem to make a lot of sense. But yeah, I I don't hate this team, I guess. And especially seeing the production that they've... 
uh, come up recently. I, before I throw it back to you, Andres, I would like to point out that they haven't lost in the last six. Um, they beat Toronto. That was before Toronto signings came in, so take that with a grain of salt. Then they beat D.C., tied NYCFC, beat the crew, tied Inter-Miami, then beat the Dynamo. Not the toughest schedule by any means, but you still haven't lost in six, and that's still good enough to see you go second in the East. Andres, what more do you have on uh, Montreal? Yeah, so I think it is what you guys said. I don't think I'm necessarily lower on them than, than you guys. I, I think they're they're a very good team, and, and it wouldn't surprise me at all um, to see them finish second in the standings. That, for me, doesn't mean that currently or ceiling-wise that they're going to be the second-best team. I've got three teams that nobody's mentioned here so far um, that I think could potentially jump them in terms of uh, talent, potential, overall probability of making MLS Cup. I'm thinking Columbus, uh, the way that they've been playing with the the talent that they have on that team. I'm thinking New England um, has been playing much better, and if they can get everybody together at the same time, we already saw what they could do last year. And I'm thinking Toronto, despite what I've said previously about their defensive woes, we see how quickly they've gelled. We're going to talk a little bit about Toronto, New England from last night. Uh, but Toronto could be a scary team if they get in. So those are three teams outside of the Philly and New York teams that I think potentially have a better chance at getting through the playoffs than Montreal. I think that's a really, really fair point. Um, I do want to go ahead and toss in, you know, to make the counter argument to what I was making and to really kind of build up, you know, the, there are questions about this Montreal team that I'm probably not asking. They only have three clean sheets on the year. And so that's, that gives me some pause. Um, and then one note on the game, the second penalty for Montreal ball. Don't lie. Never a penalty. That was super, super harsh on memo Rodriguez. Uh, so a ball does not lie. Yeah, no, I, I, that was the first thing I thought when he just skied that. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's going to be that, – that's a ball-don't-lie situation. Um, and, yeah, you, you make a good point, Andres, too, about like that conceivably there are teams that you would see as potentially you know, better teams, at least at the moment, than Montreal. But because Montreal has been consistent throughout the course of the season, that's why they are where they are. Um, I want to throw the Red Bulls in that discussion, too, because you know, there's, there's – not necessarily finishing goals at the rate that we've you know talked about that they need to right they haven't gotten that striker situation sorted but you know they have Kyle Duncan back he's a an absolute stud and that back line is still pretty good uh, the midfield too Frankie Amaya and Lewis Morgan and Lucinha still kicking so I I could see them potentially above Montreal too in a, in a one game situation but that's not to diminish what Montreal has done uh, up to this point uh, 43 43 points through 25 games, uh, sitting five points back of the Union with a game in hand. We will move on to that game that you uh, touched on very briefly, Andres, um, in kind of your argument there. Uh, Yesterday's uh, matchup between Toronto and the New England Revolution, a really interesting game in uh, Toronto last night because I I think we're talking about two teams that started slow, looked for a while that they just wouldn't make the playoffs. But now New England is now above the line, sitting in sixth in the East, and they've been on a tear recently. Toronto, 
you know, starting to gel with those, you know, influx of crazy good signings that they have still sitting 11th. A draw last night probably doesn't really benefit either team, but it shows that these teams are at a level that they weren't at the start of the season, wouldn't you say? So, yeah, both both teams significantly improved from the from the last few weeks or, or coming over through the last few weeks. Uh, last night was a super fun game to watch. First of all, you get Bruce versus versus Bob, which is which is cool always um, to get another dose of that. Then you get Bernardeschi and Insigne, um, and Larea is now back and playing well, uh, playing at home. That that team's hot, and and you could see that they're playing with a bunch of confidence. New England being super scrappy, uh, that Tommy McNamara goal to to get them on the board was, you know, they like the third or fourth effort to get in. Uh, the Crescido goal to give the Toronto the the tie late on, absolute banger. This game had a little bit of everything, and I think what we saw last night was the first game where you could really feel playoff stakes uh, coming through or the playoff vibes coming through because New England was up two one pretty late in this one, and if New England went on goes on to win there. They are seven points clear of Toronto with a game in hand. Um, as good as Toronto has been playing, that's that's quite a margin to to make up. So Toronto coming back and getting the equalizer, not losing as much ground to to a team that they're scrapping for for a playoff spot, I think was really really big. And I'm looking for both teams to kind of kick on from here. And I think I'm changing my tune here on Toronto. I think they'll both be in by the end of the the season above the line i'm not sure about toronto because i just think that they've they've given themselves so much that they need to recover in what 10 games uh that it might it might just be too much and i this was a, a like you said a really really good match but one point is just not enough for really either team but more so toronto um and I do want to go ahead and just point out uh, this is not a full-strength New England Revolution team that they went up against either. This is no Gustavo Bo. This is no Giacomo Vrioni, excuse me, uh, no Dylan Barrero. All these really, really high-level players um, that we're talking could really put New England back in the picture. Um, and... Again, if you're scoring goals regularly, if you are have a goalkeeper who's hot, you can go far. So uh, absolutely a threat. Um, really interesting to see what they can pull off for the postseason. I think that you brought up uh, those players that were out. I was going to bring up that tweet by Bogert uh, that mentioned that um, uh, Tajuri Shroudy as well, um, not playing, that he mentioned that in uh, his tweet. So I think when you look at this game, you're looking at you know, two teams that dug themselves a hole. I think for New England, their hole just wasn't as big as Toronto. And so that is why when you look at this game, if there was going to be a quote-unquote winner or loser from the draw, it it would be Toronto being the loser and New England being the winner. Because at the very least, that keeps New England above the line um, and and keeping up some of that positive uh, momentum. uh, Two wins and three draws in the last five as opposed to Toronto, where a good team, especially when you incorporate these signings, 
haven't lost uh, in the last four, or in really the last five MLS matchups uh, that they've had these uh, new players in. But they're still sitting 11th. They're still, you know, they haven't quite kicked on to the level that they might need to, even though that win over Nashville in particular was nice. The win over Charlotte in that first game was nice. I, you still need a little bit more if you're sitting 11th and you need to make up a three-point gap in what is race as closely contested as this one is in the bottom of the East. So we'll see. I think it is worth mentioning as well uh, that these two teams met on July 30th, so what, three weeks ago, of different New England team where you know you had uh, Sebastian Legette still there, you know what I mean? But Toronto had their full squad and still couldn't get all three points in Foxborough. So that's interesting that New England seems to be foiling whatever Toronto's able to bring. Maybe more teams will be looking to copy that kind of playing style moving forward. Andres, uh, what more do you have on this game and these two teams' playoff hopes? Yeah, I think so. I think you're right in terms of who's who's the happier of the two. Definitely from from this match, particularly, it's got to be New England um, to go on the road uh, to change systems. They played with three center backs. Uh, Christian McCoon get the start with Omar. Uh, that's a totally different system than I think you'd expect for, for the majority of their games. Um, go on the road against a pretty much fully fit Toronto team and get a, get a point. For sure, you're, you're happier um, than, than if you are Toronto. And if you go back the three weeks, Toronto went to New England and also got a draw. So it seems like these two teams are playing to stalemates. I'm not, I'm not sure it's really a New England to Toronto or Toronto to New England type thing. I think they're just both pretty good teams right now um, which is why I'm not as down on this draw with Toronto as, as maybe some others are uh, but yeah I, I think in general this is one of those games that if you enjoy MLS and you enjoy storylines in MLS um, and you enjoy some good soccer this was a this was a fun one to watch regardless of what it means going forward yeah one last note on this game uh Jaden Nelson was really, really fun to watch in this match. Uh, his ball into Ayoakinola to go ahead and uh, draw the penalty was beautiful. Like, that piercing ball in behind was something else. And it seems like he's been revitalized uh, since these new signings have come on. Um, almost like the, the presence of these big-time players or more experienced players has, has kind of kick-started him again because he's been really good uh, for the last month or so. When a couple, you know, before these signings came in, it seemed like there was a general lull in the whole team, including Nelson. He's been excellent for the last month. Yeah, so kind of um, bring that young Canadian presence on that team too because you look at that team, there's a good amount of Canadians on that team. Uh, you know, Jaden Nelson, uh, Oso, Richie Larea, um, w- when he's healthy, um, uh, Mark Anthony Kay, and obviously guys like Marshall Ruddy, who young guys on the bench. So he's kind of, you know, continuing that streak that they've continued this year of young Canadian presence on that team. And if he's able to kick on, I think we could you know, conceivably see a call up for Canada sometime in his future as well. A really, really good young player. Speaking of young Canadians, if Ayo could find 2020 form, uh, this team would be even scarier because he has, he's had a couple of chances in the last couple of weeks. He got the start here. 
and it just seems to not quite be clicking with him. It might be a form thing. Uh, if he can get back into form, watch out. Yeah, 100%. And we're talking about guys that are ones for the future, not for this cycle for Canada as they head into the World Cup in November, but guys that in the next cycle could 100% make a difference. We can move on from this one, and really, uh, I'll hit FCC in Atlanta, and then we can kind of wrap it up as we head into, you know, Matt Doyle interview, and then that one's kind of, uh, <laughs> that's kind of the marquee moment of this pod. Um, FCC in Atlanta uh, drew 2-2 in Cincinnati on the weekend. An interesting game, especially from an Atlanta perspective, where we're talking about a team that has started to slide considerably. Now 13th, 13th in the East. Now only four points out of a playoff uh, uh, position. But, you know, there, there's so much to talk about from this team that they were there. They continue to, you know, produce nice moments. Almada and Marcelino Moreno continue to work magic. But they don't get three points last night as well at home against the Red Bulls, losing 2-1. This is a team that continues to do some nice things, but in the end, doesn't win games. And they're sitting 13th because of it. I, I want to mainly touch on Atlanta in this segment. We can mention uh, FCC, but you know what more is there to touch on than what we already t- have touched on, which is this is a revitalized team from last year. They look really good. And Brandon Vasquez is a star. But you know, in terms of Atlanta... This is a team in kind of peril right now. Certainly, they're in playoff peril. Matt, what do you see in Atlanta? Obviously, a team that has been kind of cursed this season. Uh, looking at, at particularly the the Cincinnati match, which I was able to watch, I was not able to see much of their uh, draw yesterday or their uh, game yesterday against um, New York. Uh, what do I like about Atlanta? Very little in this iteration. Um, I think that they are starting to get a little bit more of what they're expecting from Araujo and from Almada. Uh, and they're getting good wide support specifically from Caleb Wiley. Um, and Andrew Gutman has really stepped forward since he came back from injury this last time. Um, but they still just... It's, it's another time that they just do not get pressure to the ball sufficiently for them to stop a ca- attacks. And they're going up, you know, in the game against Cincinnati, a team who is so, so good on the break and who only needs one opportunity for them to go ahead and put the ball away. Uh, Brandon Vasquez's goal was so, so smart in the well-timed run in behind, and he's able to put it past Rios Novo. Um, Atlanta, they can contain the ball pretty well, but they're finding a real lack of production at the front. Um, and unfortunately, Joseph has been poor this season. Uh, Cisneros has been okay when he came in, but is cooled off. Uh, there's just not that final ball that really is kind of separating them from stepping forward. And like you said, they're four points off the playoff, but it feels like 40. Yeah, it feels almost insurmountable at this point just because of their current form as opposed to you know teams like Toronto where their form is trending up. Atlanta's going in exactly the opposite direction. Matt, or Andre, sorry, uh, what do you see on Atlanta? And uh, can you touch on kind of last night's game as well as they fell to the Red Bulls? Yeah, and I'm not huge on one data point really being indicative of a, of a team, but 
if you just think about last night, and I know the Red Bulls in Atlanta, for whatever reason, Red Bulls seem to to always kind of own Atlanta, and especially in the regular season. But Red Bull lately hasn't been playing well. Um, I was starting to think that maybe this is a team that was going to slip from home playoff game to scrapping for final playoff spot. Uh, midweek recently, they gave up five to Orlando and they gave up five to Colorado. And now they're traveling to Atlanta, who, uh, you know, should have good attacking talent. Um, and Atlanta just seemed pretty toothless uh, the whole game, really. You know, they 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 gave up the early goal kind of against the run of play. I thought Atlanta was better the first 10 minutes. Uh, and New York gets the goal off of a fantastic cross from Kyle Duncan, who's who's redeeming himself from that first game, which was a little rough against Orlando. Um, and the second goal is, you know, a little fluky in terms of it was a corner that becomes a cross that kind of gets through everybody and goes into the net. But... They had 75 minutes to come back, and I can't think of a whole lot of moments where they really looked like they were about to. Uh, the goal comes right at the end in the 94th um, on a pass from Araujo to Joseph, which is what you would have expected to be seeing over and over and over from Atlanta, and it's just not not coming that often. They had to change entirely from formation and tactics and bring Moreno out and go more defensive and it's just one of those things where right now in the attack it's not working with Joseph up front it's not working with Marcelino playing as that kind of eight in the second line Um, and we talked about it last week about do you think about making some different roster moves or different formation tactically uh, personnel type moves and maybe bringing Joseph off the bench. Um, and I think you have to continue to wonder that because he gets the goal here late, but it wasn't great for the other 94 minutes. No, it wasn't great. And, you know, for Atlanta, they need to be able to start to score goals. Like, if it, they have any shot whatsoever, you can't be letting home matches like this slip against teams like the Red Bulls who are you know, kind of at a stalemate. They need to be able to take these uh, games and and take all three if they want a shot at the playoffs. Um, Before we move on, I think it is worth touching on the fact that you mentioned the Red Bulls are kind of in, you know, they they don't quite know where they're at right now. They are still six points clear of that kind of the five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten range where they're all scrapping for those spots. They they are separated a little bit. Um. And with Kyle Duncan performing well last night, Danny Edelman had a good game, the youngster as well. Andres, do you think that this team has enough to kind of maintain that home playoff position and whether it be third, fourth, kind of stick around? I mean, they're six points clear today um, based on yesterday. I fully expected them to lose last night. Um, and they would have been three. And then I w- then my answer would have been different because I think they're kind of just getting by right now. Uh, with a six-point gap, that's probably enough. Uh, I know it's, you know, two games away from, from being tied up. And I think Columbus uh, and New England have something to say about those standings. Columbus is two in hand as well. Yeah, I, 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 Columbus is a dark horse, man. They're... They are fully healthy now. Cucho and Zellerayan are playing incredible. And we talked about giving up the ball in your own half. And there's a reason why Darlington Nagby teams are good. 
he just never does that. Uh, I think Columbus has something to say about that that position. Uh, Rebel Yain, yeah, you know, I think fourth, fifth, I think is probably where they end up. Uh, but I don't have a ton of confidence in that team in, in part uh, because they don't have patterns of play which lead to goals consistently or a striker who finishes them. And in part because we know that pressing teams can tire uh, and the playoffs start in October rather than November this year. So the end of the season comes earlier. It's hotter for later in the season. Um, I think they stay above the line. I think they're right on the edge of a home match. Fair, fair. And Matt, you'll get the final word before we uh, swing it to our Doyle interview. You take it wherever you want. Atlanta, New York Red Bulls, what do you see in this one and uh, moving forward for these two teams? Yeah, I, I just want to touch on what do, I, what do I expect the trends to be? And right now, New York City trending downwards. Red Bull trending pretty laterally, but there are teams who are making strides. Toronto is so, so much better than they were at the beginning of the season. New England is so much better than they were at the beginning of the season. Do I think the Red Bulls are going to hold on to a playoff spot? Yes. I will be honestly shocked if if they can play that first match at home. I just, I am not convinced that they have the the ability to put the ball in the back of the net. I will say in, in uh, the highlights that I was watching of the Atlanta match, um, Kyle Duncan... I was not as as high as him on him coming in, but he was so good at pulling defenders out and creating space in the middle for him to go ahead and bring the ball inside. That was a big plus, but it all depends then on who are you getting the ball to. And I just I I don't think that the talent is currently there for New York to make a deep run. Uh, I think Columbus and New England are really going to fill that void that the two New York teams are starting to let slip. Okay. Yeah. I wouldn't be shocked if they hold on to that home game, but if there's a team that's going to catch them, I think it would be Columbus. Uh, Andres, I agree with you. They have a very gettable schedule. Um, a lot of teams that are, you know, not in the top tier of their conferences, not in the top, you know, first or second tier even of the league. So I think Columbus has a very good chance to catch the Red Bulls. If, as you said, Matt, they continue to trend laterally instead of, you know, finding form in these last, you know, eight games for them. It should be really, really interesting uh, to see what happens as the season rolls along. Now, uh, we were very, very fortunate, very, very lucky uh, to have on Matt Doyle uh, earlier in the week. I contacted him and we were able to work out some time that uh, we could sit down and have a good discussion. So Matt and Andres were with me in that interview as well. And so here's our discussion with Matt Doyle, the premier MLS analyst. So it is an absolute honor and privilege today to welcome in a guy who I think is basically universally known and respected as the MLS analyst. He, uh, on, on the Extra Time podcast, uh, on MLSsoccer.com, stirring the pot on Twitter. We are so incredibly grateful and lucky today to have Matt Doyle on the MLS Bench podcast. Matt, how's it going? Thank you so much for doing this. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure to, to come on the show. Uh, it's it's going well. The, the Lucci news just dropped. I, I watched uh, uh, James Sands play in Champions League qualifier this afternoon. It's just like a, a, another typical day in American soccer, you know? Yeah, I just, you know, all the guys playing Champions League now, you got Americans who are just in MLS, you know, over in Europe now. You, you kind of have to double duty even as an MLS analyst now. But um, I guess since you, uh, you know, brought it up, Doyle, I guess we can start with that. Just the breaking news over the last hour or two that uh, Luchi Gonzalez, uh, former head coach of FC Dallas, now U.S. assistant coach to, uh, to Greg Berhalter, is going to take the San Jose Earthquakes job after uh, this winter's World Cup. What are your initial thoughts on that? And how do you think that's, you know, going to change a franchise that right now is kind of floundering? Yeah, I, I think it, they have a really clear vision for what they want. And it's to be on the, the sort of Dallas-Philadelphia spectrum, where, where you're just cranking out homegrown players, getting them into the first team, selling them for lots of money. I, I, I know very well that, that that's what San Jose wants to do. And then competing at a high level. Um, now, I thought Lucci did really well in his two and a half years in Dallas. There were some shortcomings, right? If you watch that, the way that team played, um, they were really good at building from the back and getting into the final third. But then when they got in the final third, they had like zero kill patterns. And so their, their attack didn't generate the type of output uh, that I think it could have. And it actually reminds me of how Greg Berhalter was when he started as a head coach 10 years ago in Sweden. He got fired from that team because they just, they couldn't generate anything in an attack. And if you listen to some of the old uh, interviews with Berhalter, he says, yeah, we like, we didn't do a good job of that. But then I thought back to like, okay, when I was playing as a defender, what did I hate to play against? And from that, he was able to sort of construct this really, um, at the time, very high-level uh, MLS attack that got both, you know, fullbacks up, that got, you know, pinched the wingers inside. Uh, Pipe Higuain was a floating number 10 who would sort of go everywhere and orchestrate everything. Um, of course, Will Trapp dropping back, splitting the center backs. He was the first uh, MLS D-mid to really do that a lot. Um, and so, like, Burhalter like what made him stand out as an MLS coach was his ability to create this sort of full field of play and then distill it down once they got into the final third with those really good, really like definable kill patterns that created tap-ins for their number nines, whether it was Kai Kamara, Jossie Zardes, Ola Kamara, all of those guys had their best career, their, the best years of their career as pros playing for Greg Berhalter. So what I'm hoping for, uh, for Lucci is that by, you know, coaching under Berhalter for a year, he picked up on, you know, like if, if there's anybody in American soccer, whose brain you want to pick for final third kill patterns, number one is probably still Bob Bradley. Number two, real close. Number two would be Greg Berhalter. So I, I'm really optimistic that Lucci's going to have a huge jump as a manager in terms of what his team can produce and then spin that forward from an American soccer perspective. Well, Northern California, it's not LA, it's not Dallas, but like it's a, it's like a a next level producer of domestic talent. So if there's another team that's dedicated to producing domestic talent at the same level that Philly is and that Dallas is, 
it's it's nothing but a good thing for the league and it's nothing but a good thing for American soccer. So I'm I'm very optimistic about this hire and what it means going forward. No, that's I, I think that's a very optimistic, but I think a very realistic outtake on it as well, especially when you have um you know the Burhalter system essentially, which we know that Lucci liked to implement. We knew that um Nico Estevez has kind of taken those principles of play, brought it back to Dallas where you have Ariola, Ferreira, and some of those guys. Um, just quickly uh, on San Jose before I guess we move on from that team in this kind of conversation because we ha- did have this news. Um, everybody on Twitter, everybody uh, that reads your columns knows that you are a big fan of Jeremy Abobasi. Yeah. Um, maybe doesn't get the amount of credit that he deserves for the numbers that he continues to put up in this league year over year. I am interested what is the case for Abobasi as not like that second level striker, but you know, a guy who maybe is up there with the Brandon Vasquez's and the Jesus Ferreira this year, because you have made that case pretty effectively. So what is that case? So, so let me just, to, to get this out of the way, I love Jeremy Abobasi. He's doing what I've thought he would do for the past five years. If he ever got a damn chance to play as number nine, but what Vasquez is doing is actually a level above that just in terms of like all the underlying numbers. And I think the eye test, I think he's just a more dynamic center forward than either Ferreira or Abobasi. That said, both Ferreira and Abobasi are really good. And if Vasquez wasn't doing what he's been doing this year, I mean, really going back to the end of last year too, uh, then, you know, I'd be pounding the drum for Abobasi. And the thing is he like, he's a classic target man, um, both in buildup and in the box, and, and like he's among the league leaders in headed goals. He's, uh, you know, a dominant aerial presence, and he's a very, very good holdup presence. Though he doesn't have the knack for turning his holdup play um, vertical. It would, I think one of the things that separates Vasquez is when he's got a defender on his back, he's able to turn that defender and turn it into penetration. Whereas with a Bobasi, I think a Bobasi is maybe even a little bit better at holding onto the ball, but it's always going to go square or backwards. That's fine. Like it's a, it's a, it's a limitation, but he's still a really, really good forward. And I think that within the scope of how Burhalter plays, Abobasi actually comes back more and operates in between the lines more, like Ferreira does, than, than Vasquez. So it, it like I, I think he he would have been an obvious fit from day one with how Burhalter wanted to play, especially because you know he, he does that part, but then he does the Jossie's artist stuff in terms of like really clinical runs between the center backs and um, you know, getting sort of downhill off the ball. So, and, 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 you know, putting the fear of God into the back line that way. I, what shocks me though, um, Burhalter, the one time he had him in camp, he used him as a winger. Like he, I, I, I can't, I cannot wrap my head around the fact that at least two professional coaches have looked at Jeremy Abobasi a guy who cannot be anyone off the dribble and thought, yeah, he's a winger. I like, and the kid lost five years of his career essentially because he got drafted by a team that played him on the wing. And the two times in his Portland career that they actually used him as a center forward was the run to the, to their MLS cup appearance in 2018 and their run to winning the MLS's back tournament in 2020, like both times that he got an extended run of games as a center forward, they made a final and one time they won it. 
Um, so I, I'm really happy that he's, uh, that he's in a spot now where he's a full-time center forward. I wish he had been in a spot like that since 2017. Uh, and my hope is that with, with Lucci coming in, it, rather than the type of system that Burhalter has run uh, for the national team or that Nico Estevez is running in, in, in Dallas this year, what I hope to see is that old you know 2015 to 2018 era Columbus Crew system that got Kai Kamara 22 goals, that got Jossie Zardes 19 goals, that got Ola Kamara 19 goals, like among the league leaders for one-touch finishes every single year. Like I think if, if a Boba sees in that system, we're looking at 20 to 25 goals. And I, I think like if the U.S. doesn't notice that, Cameroon will. And one way or another, this kid deserves to be playing international soccer. I, I It's not going to happen this autumn in, in Qatar, but... Uh, you know, hopefully in 2023 and beyond. Yeah, uh, so we'll move on. Um, I was hoping to go ahead and take us to uh, another one of your, I think, favorite players in the league to watch at the moment. And I'm thinking of Emmanuel Reynoso at this point. Uh Uh, Minnesota seems to be a team that are starting to really, really click. And I think that especially if Jonathan Gonzalez clicks quickly, we're talking a team that could absolutely be a dark horse runner in the uh, in the playoffs. What do you like from them? What do you see from them? What do you think pushes them to the next level? Yeah, so they're they're a throwback team, right? They remind me of watching those great DC United teams from the late 90s. The Galaxy uh, were a similar team built around a, a number 10. Obviously Tampa Bay with Valderrama, um, you know, Kansas City with Preki to an extent. Uh, though he was kind of a different type of number 10. Um, and look, I, I I grew up in the 80s and 90s. Valderrama was my first ever, that's my favorite soccer player, you know? And, and Reynoso is that type of player. He's a throwback South American number 10. He is the highest usage player in the league in the attacking third, just in terms of the amount of touches he gets relative to the rest of his team. I think it's over 25%. It's even more than Carlos Hill or, or Hani Mukhtar. Those guys are around 20%. So everything th- flows through him. And at the highest level of the game, that doesn't work anymore, right? It's just like the, the Premier League, you know, most of La Liga, it, it, with the way the game works, with the amount of moving parts, you almost never see everything get funneled through one guy um, at every level under that it still works you still see it in Brazil you still see it in you know the non big five I mean hell you, you see it in in a big chunk of, of France still that where it's like a genius number 10 put him out there have him be your chance creator get runners around him and like it's a really good blueprint and that is the blueprint that um, that Adrian Heath is using for this Minnesota team, and I and I love it, especially because uh, Bongi Longwane on, on the right wing and and Franco Fragapane on, on the left wing, they have bought into the idea, the understanding that their job is to run, their job is to whatever the most aggressive run is, you make that run, and, and Reynoso is going to see it, and chances are he's going to get the ball to you. They scored two goals in. Nashville the other night just doing that just making those aggressive runs I love that I I have questions about central midfield not because um 
can Jonathan Gonzalez get up to speed? It's can he get on the field? Because as good as Kervin Ariaga has been this year, and he's been like one of the newcomers of the year, I mean, Robin Lud has been even better. One of the keys to this whole thing was just moving Robin Lud, you know, back to central midfield as like a sort of a, a, a metronome style number eight with his mobility his intelligence and he's he's not going to crack the game open with a pass but he's really precise and, and very good at setting tempo and getting the ball to uh to reynoso in space if you give reynoso space you're going to get so to me it's like can gonzalez even get on the field you know can will trap he's their captain he's coming back i don't think you put him in the lineup you know, so they have like real first world problems in that deep central midfield. They have a ton of chemistry and attack. The issue with this team, I see, is can their central defense hold up? Um, which is, you know, an open question. We saw what they did against Colorado two weekends ago, and then you know, Dane St. Clair has been spectacular at times. He's also been a disaster at times. So they they have more questions in the back, I think, than they do in central midfield and up top. Um, but regardless, uh, I see them. Yeah. They're definitely a dark horse team that can come out of the West, especially because they'll be entirely comfortable if, if they're going against now LASC or Austin. They'll be like, yeah, we'll, we'll sit in our own end. We'll absorb, you know, you could have 60% of the ball. Give us all that nice room to run into behind and we'll annihilate you on the break, which is how they got to the Western conference finals in 2020. Matt, um, thanks again for, for coming on. I think at this point in the in the season, any MLS podcast or, or show would be remiss not to discuss Toronto and what they're doing um, at this point. Um, I said a few weeks ago or before all the moves that I thought they had too many guys uh, playing significant minutes with ages that began either with a one or a three. Um, <laughs> and since then, they basically revamped uh, their entire or half of their starting lineup what do you see? I mean, they're a ton of fun to watch. There's still some questions in the middle. What, what do you see from them? Is it too late for them to make a run? Uh, what's what's the ambitions of this project going forward? And kind of what do you expect from them going into this last third of the season? Yeah, it, it, a lot of good questions there. I, I will say, like, they added five new starters this window. Left back, Crescito. Right back, Larea. Uh, central midfield, Mark anthony Kay. And obviously on the wings, Insigne and, and Bernardeschi. Um, you know, each one of those five players is arguably the best player in the league at their position. Um, it was a, a pretty remarkable uh, transfer window for this team. What we've seen so far through four games now that, that they've all been on the field. Well, Kay hasn't been able to play the last three because he's been injured. Uh, but anyway... F- through the last four games with four of those new guys added, um, it's it's fit really quickly, right? Like, this team is not better just because they added more talent. They're better because everyone from Insigne to Lorea to Chris, like, they're all playing within the system, and they look like they've been playing within the system for the past five years together. It's amazing how quickly it snapped into place. Um, that said, the last four games hasn't exactly been murderer's row, right? They, they have not been playing the best te- teams in the league. Um, this week is make or break for them. On Wednesday, they host New England. That's a six-pointer. You have to win that game. Uh, and then this weekend, they go down to Miami. 
that's a six-pointer. If you could take a, a draw out of that one on short rest, four-point week coming against teams that you're chasing in the standings, um, then at that point, I think I would expect Toronto to make the playoffs because it's not just the the sheer overwhelming talent. It's the way it's all worked together so quickly. Um, it's look, it's 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 an amazingly ambitious project. Uh, they, I you know, I think their their salary hit is twice the Galaxy. The Galaxy have the second highest salary budget in the league. Uh, so I think Toronto has doubled them up. They're, they're playing at the high stakes table, not only uh, in MLS, but in, in all of the Americas and arguably globally, you know, not the highest stakes, but certainly um, not far off of that. Uh, if it works, I think it's good. I, I think we want our teams to be ambitious, um, especially because it's not just about bringing in as many uh, expensive players as possible, but like Jaden Nelson's still out there getting minutes. He's an academy kid. He's one of those kids, you know, his age starts with a one. Uh, you know, uh, Io Akinola's out there. He's getting minutes and finding chances. Alex Bono is is maybe having his best year as a, as a pro in goal. Uh, Lucas McNaughton, they bought him from a Canadian Premier League club, right? So they're, they're being very diligent about kicking over every stone and developing talent, not just buying it. Um, and so I, I, you know, I, I admire that. I think that's the right way to build a team. Uh, you know, I give them credit for, uh, look at it this way. I give them credit for scouting because you, you, you know, kids don't fall into your lap in the draft. You have to find them. Uh, I give them credit for scouting the CPL. I also give them, credit for having a Rolodex that includes Insigne and Bernardeschi and then having the will to go out and, and get that done. And hopefully um, more MLS teams uh, will follow that lead because it's more exciting. It's more exciting to cover teams like this. Yeah, it's a super fun team. And that doesn't happen if they don't buy those, you know, supremely talented players. I'm not going to go into right now. We have to move along. Uh, we're on a time, but uh you know, listeners, if you have time and go and read the story of how that happened, it, it's rather absurd, but they got them in the end. Um, <laughs> I, I do want to move now to a team that you covered recently. I saw some tweets you put out recently about it. NYCFC just doesn't look like the team uh, that they were, you know, last year, obviously cup winners. And even the first half of this year, you know, excluding that little portion that they were in CCL from about April to June or so, they were maybe the best team in the league or one of the top two teams in the league. Now, obviously things happen. They lose their coach. They lose their star striker. But why is this team dropped off in, in, in such a way that makes me think that, hey, maybe they're not even a top two team in the East anymore. Yeah, they're definitely not a top two team in the East anymore. Uh, it, look, they, they got hurt bad by some absences. Keaton Parks uh, was really, really good. He's been out since uh, mid to late May, and there's no timetable on his return, uh, which is a shame because he, he was playing fantastic ball. Obviously, Tati Castellanos loaned out, no replacement. Um, that's not a great sign. Uh, Alex Collins got hurt two weeks ago. Now uh, he, you can't like Maxime Cheneau is his replacement, and like Maxime Cheneau is not as good a player. So like they have gotten hamstrung through injuries. You know, Anton Tinnerholm is still not the player he was. Uh, at the same time, when Ronnie Dyla left, Nick Cushing, the you know, came in as head coach, and um, he changed the way this team defends. 
you know, they, they don't press as much uh, and they don't press as effectively. And like, okay, you know, choosing to dial back the press for the hottest months of the year, um, that's not the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Uh, but the amount, the, the degree to which it's been dialed back is um, unusual. And then it's compounded by the fact that they have become much worse at getting pressure to the ball in their own defensive third. So, uh, you know, they're letting teams build up into that position more easily. And it's like, well, okay, I guess maybe if your new game model is to, you know, hit on the counter, you blitz them when they cross, you know, certain, you know, get to a certain point in the defensive third, you hit them and, and you get out and run, which if you have Tiago Andrade and, uh, you know, Talos Magno, okay, there, there's some sense there. But that's not what they're doing. They're just letting teams knock the ball around. And so they're giving up more of the ball. They're giving up more good chances. Um, and, and they're suffering for it. And it, it reminds me, I, I wrote this this weekend, um, or maybe it was last week, uh, it reminds me of that 2018 season when they were so good under Patrick Vieira. They were right there with that great Atlanta team and that great Red Bull team. Uh, you know, Atlanta won the Cup that year. Red Bulls won the Shield. NYCFC was right there with them at midseason. Vieira leaves. Domi Turan comes in. And Dome sees what Vieira does and says, that's not my system. And he changed everything midseason. And NYCFC got worse because of it. And they were cannon fodder in, in, in the playoffs. They made the playoffs, but they were cannon fodder. I think the same thing is going to happen with this team this year. You know, they had obviously an MLS Cup winning system under Ronnie Dyla. Rather than keep that, um, Nick Cushing decided to install his own thing, and uh, I think they're suffering for it. They'll st- they're still going to make the playoffs. Uh, they're not going to go anywhere once they get there. And to be clear, this is not entirely on, on Nick Cushing. Like you can't like Tati Castellanos was the MVP this year. Like he was better than anybody else in the league up until the moment that he left, um, and the front office did not replace him. That's ridiculous. Uh, so, like, front office has some culpability. The other thing is, look, there are only twenty-eight of these jobs. Um, if you get one of them, you do not want to like, and you have ideas for how you want to do it. You do not want to waste time trying to work on someone else's idea, no matter how successful it is. You want to go out on your shield. You want to try to implement your own things and execute your own ideas. I I don't really blame Nick Cushing for approaching it that way because you you never know. You might never get another shot. And if you have this shot and... You, you, you take it and you lose it without ever trying your own ideas, I imagine that would have to burn you up. Um, so I, like, I, I, I really do understand what Nick Cushing is doing I, in that sense. But from where I sit as a neutral, as someone who loved watching NYCFC last year, someone who thought they could maybe repeat as champions this year, I think he has moved them further from that. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't put, point that out. It's it's such a good point. And we'll, we want to make sure that we're respectful of your time. I just want to kind of get quick hits. What's what's the biggest surprise? What's the biggest disappointment, in your opinion, that you've taken away from 2022 MLS? I mean, the biggest surprise is FC Cincinnati. 
uh, the, the the most pleasant surprise uh, there could be. We're, we're a team that was historically awful, like laughably awful in almost every single way, um, turning into what is maybe the most fun team in the league to watch. Uh, and the fact that it has a you know a high scoring young American potential U.S. national team or potential World Cup number nine, you throw that into the mix as well. Um, and yeah, like it, that, what FC Cincinnati has done this year checks basically all the boxes for me to be absolutely delighted. Um, and the flip side, I, I think is Charlotte. Um, and you know, not to, not to pile on them too much, but like the, this is a, this is an expansion team that's come in, in the era of Atlanta and LAFC and, you know, even, Nashville, even like just look at Austin last year. Austin was not a good team last year, but they had an ideology. They had an approach. They had a a way that they wanted to play and do things. Um, Charlotte's had none of that. They've just been an an absolute disaster um, in terms of how it's been run. I know they're, they're on 29 points. They might finish with you know, 34, 35 or something, which isn't terrible. But if you look at that team, um, I you're hard-pressed to, to find anything close to the type of foundation that Austin built in year one and then spun forward in year two into this team that, you know, was going to end up on about 65 points or so. Um, and then within all of that is... Uh, <laughs> Like they they're playing in a football stadium, with uh, you know, on turf, it, it doesn't make for the prettiest soccer. Whereas Austin, of course, Nashville, all, almost all these other teams who've come in in the past, you know, ten years almost ha- have all um, had plans for and and uh, made progress on on soccer stadiums. So Charlotte's Charlotte's kind of a bummer. I gotta tell you. Yeah. No, I, I'm with you on those, and yeah, we'll get you out of here. I would be remiss if I didn't thank you and Vince from uh, Scuff for your work on Vasquez. You, you guys are doing some absolutely unbelievable work on that. Uh, join the Scuff Discord for more of that, by the way. That it is 24-7 in there. But no, thanks for putting those clips out, and I, who knows? BV might be going for a USMNT spot in September. He definitely deserves one. Um but no, Doyle, thank you so much for hopping on. I, I really do appreciate it. Um, really glad that we can make this work, and the honor is 100% all ours. <laughs> Stop. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun to come on and, and, and talk MLS with you guys. Uh, please, you know, hit me up anytime. We'll do it again. So that was pretty awesome. Uh, Matt is just so, so incredibly uh, knowledgeable and thoughtful on this league, and it was... Just really, we're so grateful that he was able to make some time for us. Our Matt, uh, Matt Showalter, uh, what did you make of the interview? And, you know, it just, it just such a privilege to have him on. Yeah, that, I don't get starstruck too easily, but that's, this is one where, this is, this is the guy. So thank you so much, Doyle, for, for coming on and chatting with us. Uh, truly, it highlighted this show so far in my, in my, for me, at very least, this was cool. So, uh, and I, I'm right there with Doyle. I think Minnesota's scary, so we'll see what they can do. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I same. Definitely the highlight. Uh, Andres, do you take anything away from the interview and uh, just the you know, overall thoughts of how cool it is that we have you know the guy on our show? Yeah, I think I mentioned to you guys that I've probably listened to slash read more words about MLS by Matt Doyle than just about anybody else. So that was extremely cool to have him on. Um, I thought it was really interesting his thoughts on Lucci, uh, on what that the future of the of the Quakes is, on his thoughts on Ibobisi, um and and how he can progress going forward, and and just in general to hear from him about Toronto and how quickly they're gelling. Uh, just awesome to to get his thoughts and and to have him on. Uh, really a pleasure. Yeah, definitely a pleasure. And the Quakes, like um, he was mentioning, very interesting one. I'm glad that we were able to touch on that because of that news breaking that we weren't even able to get to on the main pod. I'm glad we were able to touch on it with him. So yeah, uh, what an episode having on Matt Doyle. Again, so incredibly grateful and honored to have him on. Uh, we'll be back next week with a normal MLS pod uh, to recap what, you know, this week was the second highest scoring uh, match day or match week of any MLS uh, week in history. Uh, the week before that was the highest. Maybe we can make this the third highest or who knows? Who knows what the next week uh, could be in MLS? It should be a ton, a ton of fun. And we'll be back next week uh, to recap it all. Thank you all so much for listening. And until next time, enjoy life, enjoy the beautiful game, and we'll see you then.